Deep in the farthest recesses of the most distant jungle lies a city. A city populated by the most mysterious, terrifying, and downright grotesque denizens ever seen by mortal eye. Here, in the darkened corners of this cavernous locale, sits an ordinary, average brick building with an innocuous, ordinary, average, blinking neon sign which reads, On Air. It is here where each week, Seth Breedlove and Mark Matsky convene to discuss the greatest mysteries the world has ever known. Now, strap on your hiking boots, grab your trusty walking stick, and don't forget your machete as we begin our journey through Monsteropolis. Well, we got about uh, <clears throat> 42 minutes on this one. So 30, if we can do like 38 minutes. This is Monsteropolis, <laughs> a show about anomalies, <laughs> legends, and monsters. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Prelove. I'm joined, as always, by my pal, Heather Mosher. Hi. I thought I'd throw it to you first just to yeah, see if I could throw off. you off your game. Yeah. And my pal, Mark Matsky. Happy Spooktober. Spook. Scarathon. Scarathon <laughs> time. <clears throat> the Scarathon rules on. Startlement theater. <laughs> October yeah. 22nd, which, Wait, if you're listening to this show, is over. Is happening right now. Right? No, it's it would be when this is oh. on. The, <laughs> check the calendar. Let's look at the calendar. <laughs> no calendar. The calendar there. is closed. Uh, October twenty second in uh, Pennsylvania. Oh yeah, yeah yeah right. New Galilee. New Galilee, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. The Pig Lady Festival taking place. Uh, from, Heather yeah. will be there from from Small Town Monsters. Heather from Small Town Monsters. <laughs> like what's what's the time of the event? <laughs> but, from 5 to 10 p.m. 5 to 10 p.m. There, Heather will be there. She will be taking part in some sort of live show thing mm-hmm. with Astonishing Legends. Mm-hmm. Scott Philbrook will yep. also be there. Uh, and they will be showing Invasion on Chestnut Ridge by Small Town Monsters, narrated by Mark Matsky. <gasps> That's me. <laughs> yes. Did yeah. you write that movie? Who wrote that mm-hmm. movie? Mark Matsky. You and I did. Did we? Yeah, you Mark. gave me the outline and I wrote it. <laughs> and then talked it. Wrote a movie with Mark. Said it. the words. Uh, Mark will also be talking on screen. Invasion on Chester Ridge. Check it out. Pig Lady Festival. I'll be at Scarefest that same weekend through Sunday. Um, tickets are probably expensive, honestly. It's a con. It's a horror con. It's worth it if you're like super into the pop culture related. I'm selling it. Yeah, you me, are. I, if you're like, really? <laughs> me and a bunch of people that have been on ghost hunting shows will be there. Mm. Uh, folks like Nick Groff, nice guy. Me? I. You've been on, on Trail of Hauntings. I've been on the is, Trail of Hauntings. Is it horror or is there sci-fi? Is there sci-fi? I think it's primarily horror. Okay. Horror. 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 So make sure you come down uh, to Lexington, Kentucky and meet me. And I'll have DVDs and stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, should be pretty fun. I, Bruce Campbell's going to be there. I'm going to get him to sign again his book, If Chins Could Talk. 
That's the name of his book. Yeah. <laughs> his first book. He, sh- he signed it originally all the way back when the year it came out. I just realized 19, something. 1999, and it's, uh, he signed it. <laughs> Seth Shops S Mart. Mark just realized something. Yeah, I just had a moment. What's up? That same weekend, I'm going to be at Monster Bash in Pennsylvania. Is that that weekend? What? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, what's Monster Bash? You got to go to Pig Lady Festival. I bet it's right down the road. I don't, I don't know, know where is it. And the, um, it's not. Not on Sunday of Ohio Mart, it's Legend of Boggy Creek. The restored edition is being shown. Monster Bash. Monster Bash in uh, town? Cranberry. Cranberry? What? You said Ohio Mart. Yeah. Did I? Yeah. yeah. So? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's I'm very right, confused. All right. So we're all going to be at events that Wait, weekend. Yeah, yeah. You could, anyone in any part of the country has a really good chance of running into us that weekend. Any part of the country. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> any part. Yep. Come bump into us. We might be anywhere. Yeah. You don't know. You never know. All right. Wait, November what is, 1st. Uh, what is the pig lady, though? What's the, can you ex- oh, just geez. describe the pig lady <laughs> thing? Shut that. Yeah, no. <laughs> Well, I mean, no, it's, it's named after this thing, and I well, have no idea. Yeah. What... So there was a young girl who was murdered, and like her parents had left the house. They came home, found her, or well, she was missing. I think they found her body under the floorboards, and her head was gone. Whoa. So for a while, she was like a headless ghost. But then oh. I'm feeling like it was the 50s. Um, somebody said that they saw a spirit with a pig head. And then that just stuck because it sounded better, I guess, to mm. say pig lady mm-hmm. instead of headless ghost. So that's not how she started. Okay. Um, so Barbara it's based Davidson, on a real yeah. account. Oh it's my. based on a real account, but she got that name because somebody thought they saw a pig-headed ghost. Oh, I'm sorry. Are it's... we tiring you, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> showrunner Andy Matsky? <laughs> yeah, we were on ghosts. Sorry. <laughs> Murder and dismemberment. <sighs> Boring. No, just kidding. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just, I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. So now I do. Mm-hmm. The more you know. Yeah. The lore you know. Okay. <gasps> um, all right. So we are, we have other things. If you want to watch the show, you can go on YouTube and watch it. You can watch it ad free on YouTube. If you're a channel member, that's about it. We need to get into the topic of the show because I don't have a ton of time and we've already wasted five minutes of it. Wow. Whoa. Are you a commenter? <laughs> I might be. What if we found out that was yeah. all, all my alternate burner accounts on YouTube? I might have known. Uh, someone else is going to have to lead us through this episode because I didn't do any research. I probably won't even talk. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll make you talk about Frankenstein right. movie cycle. Young mm-hmm. Frankenstein. Ooh. My mom and dad just watched that the other day. For the first time? No, 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 no. Oh. But my, my mom texted me. We're watching Young Frankenstein right That's now. one of the greats. So I sent her a Marty Feldman gif in response. <laughs> uh, Frankenstein. Yeah. yeah. A yeah. reanimated corpse. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know him. Sewn together by the pieces of men. Feces of man. Pieces. pieces. Oh. What is up with you? Yeah. It's <laughs> wow. So, I have a four-year-old. That's what's <laughs> up with me. <laughs> All right. Well, should we start with the story? Because mm-hmm. that's where it does begin, yes. after all, is with Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want me to? Go on, yeah. All right. You guys got this. Yeah. Mark's got this well, for the Mary Shelley part. Yeah, for the Mary Shelley part. <clears throat> the What's so cool about the origin of this particular story is that it came out of a kind of contest. 
And even that sound makes it sound very um, formal when it really wasn't. It was a group of writers sitting around in sort of a decadent Europe saying, how should we pass the time? I know, let's write stories and try to scare each other. And uh, this was during a a summertime where the weather had been affected by a volcanic eruption. It was one of those times referred to as like the summer that wasn't because of the ash in the air. Wait, what year? Well, we're talking about here, 1816. That's the year of the Bell Witch. Oh. What's up? It's 1817. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, no, hold on. There is a Bell Witch connection because the sure Bell Witch is, is. Yeah, the, the, the year without. <laughs> the year without a. Whoa. The year without a summer is yeah. the year before the Bell Witch thing kicks off. That's one of the reasons the this the c- current condition of of that's why I said the Bell Witch. It's not the same yeah. year. It's just eighteen sixteen is the year we talk about it in the movie. Have you seen the movie which you're in? <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't asked to research that part. Okay. Had I been, you, you'd have told me I was wrong. I say you might have done it wrong, and yeah, then I would have on the spot. Okay, so all right, so they are gathered together uh shelley's percy shelley mary shelley husband and wife and lord byron who is just a notorious like libertine do whatever you want to do with your life type a person and also the, one of the greatest writers in in english literature at the same time and they have this contest and the one writing that really um stuck after that whole incident was Frankenstein and there's been some questions as to how much Percy Shelley was involved in writing it but I think most critics have said well they definitely Frankenstein the story reflects the interest that Percy and Mary both shared it really was Mary's work uh, that made it up and what's I think most interesting of all about the story that Mary came up with is it was influenced by experiments that were happening at that time and and slightly before that time having to do with reanimated tissue using electrical voltage and hooking corpses up to high voltage turning it up and seeing what happened and yeah boy and that's how that was invented the the current sound but um (laughs) But at at the end of it, what you have is um, Mary's, what what gets reflected in the story ultimately, I think, is that Mary had a childhood in which her mother died in essentially not in childbirth, but shortly after she was born. Her father essentially disowned her, sent her to live away. And so what, what you have in the story of Frankenstein is a creator figure who has this thing that he created and then refuses to support him because that's that was doc that was frankenstein's big problem in the book is that his the creature that he made by stitching all these pieces together and and animating it he turned his back on his creature and then the creature goes on this murderous rampage etc murdering his members of his family and so the the story of frankenstein is a story about what responsibility does a creator have to its creature and you know you could say it's daddy issues because it really is Mm -hmm. 
you know, she's working through her feelings about having been abandoned by her own father, who was a great literary figure in his own right, as was her mother. So she's like trying to be literary herself and create something greater than either of her parents ever did. But it's basically asking the question, you know, if you're a creator, what responsibility do you owe to what you made? And it's, it's pretty interesting in that regard because, yeah, it gets into other stuff like science and how far is too far and should we play God? And there's all those sort of sub-themes in the story itself. But it really is about um, Frankenstein running away from what he made. Huh. And it's interesting. In the book, he's never a doctor. He's a student. And he's into all of these arcane things that people were into and that Percy Shelley and Mary were definitely into, which touches on things like alchemy and um, just ancient wisdom, even like Kabbalah and uh, Jewish narratives. And then the golem comes the wrapped golem, in. The golem that, yeah. has, has an element there. Right, right. That's, that's all I got. <laughs> so... Um, Real quickly, you know, there were scientific experiments, and the guy that I was mentioning before is a name named Luigi Galvani, from which we get our word galvanized, like galvanized steel, huh. traces back to him. Uh, he applied different voltages first to dead animals, like frogs, to see what would happen. And, you know, they would, um, the, the muscles would twitch and yeah. move, mm -hmm. and that would that led them down the path to what if we applied this to human beings, which mm -hmm. they did. <laughs> Leading up to 1803, uh, when Gio, uh, Galvani's nephew Giovanni Aldini uh, brought the corpse of a recently hanged murderer, Thomas Foster, from Newgate Prison to an operating lab, and he invited people to come watch what might happen if we hook this corpse up to an electrical charge. Uh -huh. <laughs> huh. All right, I'm done. Oh, boy. And thus the rave was born. <laughs> oh, man. So here's what actually happened. Yeah. They applied the electrical current and Thomas Foster's corpse, the eyes opened, um, his fists clenched and he went into convulsions. And someone who was there wrote, it almost gave the appearance of reanimation. Huh. And so this, if that sounds like it's almost a sideshow, it's because it was. And oh, Aldini began to... Did he catch fire? You would think he would have caught... Yeah, evidently not in this okay. case. But that was, I think that did happen to some of the animals that were done uh, earlier by Galvini himself. Mm. So all that is to say that this took on a, a sort of performance aspect. It was a spectacle of mm. sorts. And Aldini did this on more than one occasion. Would the local press would flock to whatever it was that he was doing, and this entered into. I, I bring this up because it did enter into. It would have been in the the thought world of the Shelleys and the Byrons, and something they were very interested in was: is it possible to bring life to dead things? And it seemed for a while, at least, that electricity would be one of the ways that that might potentially be possible and that factors into the book in the sense that um, Frankenstein records in one of his journals that he saw a tree completely destroyed by a lightning strike and he wondered 
theorizing, you know, can there be, does electricity, if it has that kind of power, then certainly must have some sort of power enough to give charge to a dead object and could reanimate it. And that definitely is featured then when you get into the movies and so forth. You could, it's hard to think of a Frankenstein movie that doesn't feature some kind of electronic charge. And in the case of, you know, the classic universal films, you know, it's minutes long, the sequence of the different electronic devices and uh, being taken up to the very top of the castle where the lightning is bouncing all around up there. So that factors in. Um, let's see, what else about Mary Shelley? Well, that's, I think we mentioned the golem before, a living creature made out of clay, and in that case, taking on a protective role where um, the Hebrew language is actually used in order, and it's the use of the language together with sort of a ritual that gives that character life. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's serving in a protective fashion against uh, Jewish persecution. And I've heard people connect the golem with the tulpa as well. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but it, some people, like the thought form thing. Mm -hmm. There's, I've, I've read that, you know, people make the connection between those two things. Uh, in that, now the tulpa though kind of isn't controlled, right? It's it's out there just doing its own thing. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, but the golem is beholden to its master, mm -hmm. like its creator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the the best place to learn about the golem is the comic book Hellboy by Mike Mignola, which I have to be honest with you, is where I did any of my learning about the golem. All right. Nice. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Excellent contribution. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that, um, needless to say, then the story has like taken on a life of its own. It's still in print. Uh, I see what you did there. Yeah. Yeah. See where we're. Yeah. Oh, got right. it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so yeah. Thing. That's, that's a good so one. that takes us into the films. I, I think if unless there's anything else on Shelley that you wanted to I, I the thing is like I've read that book I read that book actually a lot when I was a kid I read that mm -hmm. and I read Dracula I love them yeah both both of those books uh, both by Mary Shelley uh, really great <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> it's a joke uh, the movie by uh, Martin Scorsese is that it it's not Francis Ford Coppola is it Coppola? I haven't seen it, but I think it's Coppola. I, oh, the much later. The much oh, yeah. Later. I thought it was Scorsese, but maybe it is. Okay. Is it, it the one with the near? Yeah, it's terrible. That's all I wanted to add to that part. Okay. Wow. Look, guys, I'm not going to talk much on this episode. I got to let people yeah. know I'm here. <laughs> got it. They tune in for for you for these these vocal the cords. dulcet yeah, tones. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So with the films um, in the silent era, there were three versions of Frankenstein. I mean, it's one of the most filmed stories hmm. that there is in in like cinema history of different companies have used it i mean this there's like i don't know almost 30 to 40 titles here of films on my on the page wow. so that gives you a sense of the popularity of the the character um you know dracula opened the door in 1931 for universal studios and then frankenstein came next uh, Bella Lugosi was originally slotted to play the monster and they did a screen test and it just looked, it was silly. It didn't work for whatever reason. He didn't come across 
in the same way. It's Branagh, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, I just uh, I just realized it's Kenneth Branagh directed that one. Yeah. So the executives saw that footage, switched it out. Coppola did Dracula. Boris Karloff becomes the actual mm. uh, Frankenstein monster. Dracula's good. And then, um, you know, Robert Flory got involved with the project. Lugosi left. And Flory added things that aren't in the book at all, but have become almost synonymous with the Frankenstein legend, like the criminal brain being put into the, the creature's body and the windmill ending at, mm. with the, on fire and so forth. Yeah. That is all cinema. Mm-hmm. That, that's not Shelley. But um, that's, that original movie then was directed by James Whale, mm-hmm. Colin Clive, who Whale had worked with previously on a world war one movie is plays uh dr frankenstein and the movie cost two hundred fifty thousand dollars to make and grossed 12 million in 1931 so it was a gigantic success yeah started a whole horror Mm -hmm. cycle at universal and other studios got on board with that right away great it it is a great movie the one you're probably about to talk about, Bride of Frankenstein, is far, far better in my opinion. It's one of the like ten best movies ever made. I think it's a, it's and it's a, it's almost in a completely different genre because Frankenstein is very much like straight ahead horror with a little bit of like Wales sense of humor. Bride of Frankenstein is like very macabre comedy. It's like yeah. it's it's almost like a forerunner for like Tim Burton or something like mm-hmm. that. It's it's and it's cre- there's some creepy funny stuff in it as well. It has a very dark sense of humor. It's a great movie. I just had a memory flashback when you were talking about the windmill of <clears throat> being very young over at my grandmother's house and she had uh, coloring books for me and there was a coloring book that had the universal monsters in it mm-hmm. and there was a windmill picture oh that. yeah do you know what i'm talking about no i don't <laughs> i i now i feel like i need to find it like yeah. on ebay or something and see if i was can it find frankenstein it again. or was it just like... it was all of the monsters because oh, cool. i remember the creature from the black lagoon mm-hmm. being in it as oh, well yeah. but i had forgotten like memory unlocked when you yeah, did yeah. that that's really cool yeah there's yep. a, a big uh i know that burton's sleepy hollow uh ending at the windmill is, is elements of that are homage to, yeah. to Frankenstein. Yeah. So what else did you like about Bride? Because I could talk about that. Yeah, Bride, uh, well, the, the Bride herself is like one of the highlights of the movie, but mm-hmm. she doesn't actually come into play until far later, if I'm not mistaken. Sure. It's been a while since I've watched yeah. it. But, um, but you'll have a, gr- I will say, you'll have a greater appreciation for that movie if you watch this movie from like 98 called Gods and Monsters with uh, Brendan Fraser and uh, Sir Ian McKellen as James Whale. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a really good movie. Yeah. Uh, Very sad, but it it gives you, I think, a really good insight into into Bride of Frankenstein. But the cinematography, the sets, the sets in that movie stand out above almost everything else. And then uh, he does, um, again, it's been a while, but I feel like I remember the lighting in the movie being very... um, like uh, not French, but like that German expressionist. Oh, expressionist, yeah. yeah like it, it's a very, st- it's it's like highly stylized, especially compared to Frankenstein, mm-hmm. the, the first movie. Um, and, and there's like those fade things, outs and stuff that right. are very those deliberately. Black gray. Yeah, mm-hmm. the exposure goes way down. Yeah, and it, it's a very, um, it's like it's it's one of those movies where when I saw it as a kid, you get the directors, you get. 
you get how a movie um, has its own voice, I guess, is like, is like what I would... You watch Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, and it's clearly the work of like a singular work of mm-hmm. like a genius. And Bride of Frankenstein is that kind of movie. The first movie, though, what do, when you watch it back to back, they're just very different. That first movie doesn't have that element of style. It's certainly not as like flamboyant anyway. Mm-hmm. It's not as apparent. It's still a really great movie, but the second movie, he's just like going for it. He like is. Everything he wants to do, he's, yeah. it's in there. It's really great. Yeah. And what's significant about that, too, is that there's ways in which Bride is more like the book mm. than the first one, because especially the idea of the monster speaking. Because mm-hmm. in the first movie, he just grunts yeah. and growls and is is more menacing of a figure than really, I, I guess, a scary figure. He's sort of lumbering around. But in the second one, he's more mobile and he's speaking and he wants contact with humans like the the blind beggar in the house. Mm-hmm. You know, and he strikes up a friendship with him. And that's very much more like Frankenstein in the book, who's who actually becomes very well-read and extremely smart and um, who does want to have a relationship with Frankenstein, the creator, and he just keeps, you know, shoving him away. So that's, and there's just a lot of imagery in Bride of Frankenstein that's really yeah. super interesting. The, the little people and all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It's really good. So then, you know, from there, Frankenstein just becomes completely ubiquitous in Hollywood to where you've got, you know, just Son of Frankenstein in 39, which sort of saved the horror genre after a time of censorship in Hollywood and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Goes to Frankenstein in 42, meets the Wolfman in 43, House of Frankenstein in 44, House of Dracula in 45, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in 48. That's the best. That's, it might, I mean, well, it's not better than Bride, but it's like it, it is... If you, if you're young, that's the movie you get. I, that's the movie that introduced me to like the Universal monsters. Yeah, yeah. Someone bumped something because yep. we just got some serious feedback. Okay. It was. It's yours. Damn it. I don't know. I didn't touch anything. Yeah, you're okay. We're good. Okay. All right. Fixed it. Thank you. Yeah. So that's um, clearly you could see in that string of years, Universal had found their cash cow, mm-hmm. and they were going to ride that as long as they could, and then. In the 50s, a new studio steps in. It's Hammer Studios yeah. uh, in England, who kind of returns to the original books in some ways and not others, but they're characterized by Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in many of the key roles throughout those films, beginning with Curse of Frankenstein in 57. And I know, Seth, you've talked about Hammer films mm-hmm. as being a, another sort of intro into, yeah, but those uh, are the, I've genre. only seen the first of those. Okay. And I own the others. The only thing that stands out to me when I'm thinking about them is that they had the classic hammer look from that 50s era, which is like the the really lavish uh, set design and the and the background, the back, uh, the matte. I don't know if those were matte paintings or what they were doing, hmm. but but that that movie, Horror of Dracula, and um, uh, the uh, Hound of the Baskervilles all have a really similar look that I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's from that, that yeah. same era. It's such a huge contrast. Now it seems sort of quaint, but back then, the fact that they were in full color. Very bloody. Yeah. The, red, red, the reddest blood you've ever seen. Right, <laughs> right. So you go from like the black and white sort of stilted situation of the uh, early films to the 
hammer blood and bodice ripping mm -hmm. all of that stuff happening and it was just like a dazzling yeah. thing i think to horror viewers and definitely paved the way i think for like the next wave of slasher and and gore right focused stuff happening in like the 70s and 80s yeah. so you, there's all sorts of other frankenstein film stuff we could say but like uh, monster squad of course we were talking about the before in 87 mm -hmm. Is had a, their own version of Frankenstein monster. Van Helsing in 04 had their own slate of universal monsters. Um, kind of bewildering to me, but I enjoyed that movie. Did when you? It came out. I remember seeing it in theaters, and there's like a very ornate. Uh, over the top opening with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde where he's like chasing them across these rooftops. Yeah. And at that time, that might have been the most expensive movie made, at least during that year. It was huge. And then it was a huge bomb. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of ended Steven Summers' big budget, like directing career, which mm -hmm. in a way sucks because I've always. Man, this episode's going off the road. <laughs> but I loved, uh, and I talk about this all the time. He made a movie with treat williams i can't remember what it's called it's like deep water or something it's a it's a it's an underwater monster movie mm -hmm. on a cruise ship so these monsters oh, wow. get onto a cruise ship and they're just killing everybody really really great and that's the movie that got him the gig directing the mummy oh yeah so then he okay. makes the mummy and then he yeah. makes the mummy returns then he makes van helsing and van helsing's a huge flop and yeah and he doesn't do much of anything anymore mm -hmm. yeah yep and then um just as a like a postscript to that part you know even japanese monster movies got into the act with two films in particular frankenstein conquers the world in which um the heart of the frankenstein monster that we're talking about here uh gets taken by taken away uh stolen by the nazis if i'm not mistaken and then uh as the ship is leaving the harbor that's when hiroshima gets nuked oh wow and so the irradiated heart of the original frankenstein monster grows to kaiju size and it's like this this uh, humanoid figure that just keeps growing and growing scientists want to chop his hand off to see if he'll keep growing after that and then um, another monster appears in japan at the same time that he ends up fighting at the end naturally yeah and then there's a sequel to that called war of the gargantuas in which it's alleged that f like skin flakes of the first frankenstein monster fall off and become this green and brown humanoid monster oh. that act as brothers at first but one's good and one's bad and they end up fighting each other oh. at the end Sad. it's a great movie great both of them are great but anyway that gives us a sense of how frankenstein is deeply enmeshed mm -hmm. in world culture up to this very moment which then leads us to like how realistic is the idea of reanimating dead tissue and making something out of nothing or something that was dead right. well i just think it's come up multiple times in my head while you were talking about you know if your heart stops they do an electric shock to try mm -hmm. to get it beating again so i mean there is something to using electricity to bring life back at least in some form not just taking a corpse though and shocking it until it right uh, well, when I was looking into stuff for this, I was thinking about the idea of reanimated dead in general, not just Frankenstein putting all these pieces together. And um, in like Scandinavian myth, there's the Draugr, which is a reanimated corpse that 
I mean, it, it smells bad. It's aggressive. It's got superhuman strength, which I think all kind of factors into the mm-hmm. same idea of Frankenstein. Um, and it's it's uh, the only way to kill it is to find the body and like give it a second death or whatever because it was a reanimated mm. thing. But one of the things that I did looking into this was I grabbed uh, scary stories to tell in the dark. Yeah. Because Alvin Schwartz was excellent with adding bibliography and notes at the end. And so there's a story in the first uh, scary stories to tell in the dark called The Big Toe, which actually gets covered in the movie that came out recently. Mm. Um, and he took inspiration from that from Mark Twain, who used to talk about, uh, he had a, a story that he would tell called The Golden Arm. And the idea is that somebody ha- either had a golden, there's different versions of it, mm-hmm. but had a golden arm and they passed away and somebody out of greed took that arm. And then the corpse comes back to reclaim it, which in uh, a scary story to tell in the dark, it's a toe that gets dug mm-hmm. up or whatever. And then the corpse comes shambling yeah. back to get it. But uh, Mark Twain used it as a storytelling like workshop because it's a whole idea of you're telling this story, you sucker people in, get them really engrossed, and then you shout at the end whatever the final phrase is. Mm-hmm. Um, which he actually, for Alvin Schwartz, puts that into Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. You know, little, little parentheses, shout this. Um, but I thought that was interesting that I think when I read it, it goes back a couple hundred years. I don't think Mark Twain invented it. But um, I don't know, the idea that pieces get taken away and then a corpse comes back in that instance or with something like the Draugr or the Barrow White, a revenant of some sort. Come, Bar- what's the Barrow White? The Barrow White, those are in England, um, if I'm not mistaken. And they are reanimated corpses that come back, but I think they're kind of tied closer to where their burials are. Mm. I think I don't think that they yeah. get this huge range of motion. Right, and they typically guard the items that are buried with mm. Like if there's a knight or something that's buried under a mound, they have yeah. they're buried with their sword and mm. the plunder stuff that they earned yeah. as part of their their battles and the barrow weight, like make sure <laughs> nobody tries to rob the grave and make mm. off with a treasure chest or they're something. Like guardians yeah. in that way. Right. But yeah, the um physical physical creatures. I thought that was the interesting part of that. So I love it. I like it. So there were attempts to do you? Yeah, no, I was, I was just double checking our time. Okay, <laughs> wrapping it up. So there are just a couple quick little anecdotes here at the end where people have actually tried to do this, like in the 1930s, for example. There's a by a doctor by the name of Robert Cornish at University of California Berkeley who revived two dead dogs by rocking them back and forth to get their blood moving while injecting anticoagulants and steroids. This just reminds me of Frank and Weenie that I get watching. <laughs> oh, we should have talked about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it, it worked to enough of a degree that a California death row inmate named Thomas McGonagall mm. volunteered upon his death. Sure to have to give Cornish permission to yeah. do the same thing to him to see what would happen. Why Did not? it work? The state of California denied the request. <gasps> oh, man. Yeah. Why? Why? I, I don't they, understand. They didn't want McGonagall. <laughs> they didn't want that guy Big alive. Big Pharma. <laughs> <Am I> right? <laughs> 
And then more recently, in 2019, um, this was published in the journal Nature in April, researchers at Yale University uh, went about the process of trying to reanimate pig brains, mm. and they restored brain activity and some cellular activity in sort of, it's almost like a matrix situation where they were in a solution and with attached to electrodes and things right. of that nature. Um, after a few, and the, the pigs that they obtained, the brains that they obtained uh, were a few hours after the pigs had died in a slaughterhouse. So uh, they, they were able to restore some activity and, uh, but not consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it's like well, it, it, it's analogous to the earlier story where you hook the corpse up and it it did things because it was being stimulated. Yeah, but it's sense. just not the same as conscious life. But I thought that was pretty wild that as recently as 2019, there were still experiments being done to see mm -hmm. can dead tissue be reanimated by natural processes mm -hmm. and. Still, the answer appears to be no. Eh, they're not letting us really test it. Is my? We just got to start digging up stuff. Digging up, digging bodies. up graveyards. Oh boy. Let's go for it. Yeah. Well, and there's a whole stream that we could have gone in, but we didn't. With zombies. Not well. It, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, in a more a modern form, like um, editing the human genome. Mm. Like, how far do you go with that in trying to program certain things out? of the human sure. genome versus designing mm -hmm. something, you know, like eye color or. Yeah, we can already kind of dictate some yeah, of that stuff. Yeah, so that, that factors into the Frankenstein mythos too, you know, and always, I mean, today, bottom line, the word Frankenstein, when it's used, is typically not positive. Mm. You know, right. to say like, this is a Frankenstein-like process or result, it's not, complimentary and when right. somebody uses that as sort of an adjective they're saying they meddled in something that they probably shouldn't have or maybe we've gone too far mm -hmm. uh death always <laughs> challenging us um scary you were just ending with death and i was like <laughs> scaring us uh, one must wonder as we look at mary shelley's classic tome frankenstein how much <laughs> How much of that book is about us uh, wrestling with the death of our own <laughs> loved ones and the idea that maybe we can bring them back <laughs> from beyond? Oh. oh, boy. I thought you were reading something. Oh, boy. All right. That's it. Uh, another great episode of Scarathon. We got one more, right? No, that's it. This is the end of... That's, this is the end of Scaretober. It's the final I don't scare. Think you guys Scarathon. Understand how time, the show comes out <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow, and then the next day. That the next one is like the twenty second. There's a oh yeah yeah yeah. One more. Oh, that's it. What? No, bro. Yeah. 29. Oh yeah. There's one more. All right. 29. There'll be it's one not more. The end. It's, it's not, not the end. end. There's we get more to scares. Yay! Wolfman. Whichever one we want. I don't know. Invisible I forgot, I forgot that yeah, I'm supposed mummy. to edit this episode, and I gotta get, get I gotta get going out to Minerva soon. 
Oh, rough life. I'm going to go find Bigfoot. All right. Uh, that does it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Leave us a rating and review, review on iTunes. Please don't. Um, no, just please don't. Thanks for listening. 